There is, I believe, a cry going out from sober and godly people, and they are passionate about the need for Christians to return to holy living. But unfortunately, there is another voice that is so loud and so dominating in Christian circles that it really smothers out the first voice. If you look at the statistics about sexual sin, you will quickly see that addiction has found just as much room inside the church as it has outside its four walls. And over the last few shows, we've been asking the question, how did we get here? Today, we're going to look at obedience to God. We're going to explore how minimizing its importance leads to a perversion of the grace of God, which in turn results in spiritual apathy, lawlessness, and licentiousness. In short, when you have a church that is not committed to obeying God, you are paving the way to becoming the church addicted. I'm your host, Nate Dancer. We're glad you're with us. This is Purity for Life. Welcome back to our series, The Church Addicted, where we've been looking at some of the foundational reasons that those in the church are in just as much bondage to sin as those outside of it. In previous episodes, we've looked at how modern evangelism has largely abandoned the preaching of a gospel that delivers people from their sins. We've also seen that without godly disciplines in a person's life, they cannot be an overcomer. And we've seen that many people in the visible church declare that they love God and yet exhibit a love for the world by their lives. Today we continue on by looking at obedience to God. In this first segment, Steve Gallagher talks about the conflicting messages within the church and the kind of life that this produces. Steve, in your book, Intoxicated with Babylon, you tackled the issue of genuine versus false faith. And you started that discussion in the book by talking about two conflicting messages going out to the church in America today. Let's begin by talking about that. Well, Mike, there is, I believe, a cry going out from sober and godly people. These people understand how the spirit of the world has infiltrated the church and how it's affecting people's lives. And they are passionate about the need for Christians to return to holy living. You know, it's like a refreshing call to repentance and holiness going out from some, through some voices. But unfortunately, there is another voice that is so loud and so dominating in Christian circles that it really smothers out the first voice. And basically the message that they are propagating is that you don't have to be holy. You don't have to obey God. 
You know, you can basically live how you want to live as long as you go to church and and just follow some basic outward type rules, you know, that you don't have to get yourself all in a strain and about uh, living a holy life. You know, that's that's what grace is there for, you know, and if you have a few little sins in your life, don't be too concerned about it. God loves you and his grace will cover it all. So there is a kernel of truth to this message, but it is an overemphasis of grace. That's exactly what it is. Of course, we appreciate God's grace, and it does cover us in our lapses and so on. But his grace is meant for sincere believers. We are talking about a holy God, and he does not wink at sin. You know, Paul said, God is not mocked. And the message here is basically that you can live for yourself. You can live selfishly. You can live a worldly, carnal, even a sinful life. And none of that really matters because God's grace is going to cover you no matter what. And it's just simply not in Scripture. And Paul warned us about this message, that this was going to be the kind of message going out in the last days. Yes, he did. As one of his passages of Scripture, when he started referring to what Christianity was going to look like in the end times, he gave Timothy what has become a famous warning, that the time would come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Why not? Because they want to have their ears tickled. And so, therefore, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away from the truth. And that's exactly what we see happening in America today. Well, it seems like one of the consequences of that in the church in America today is that we think we can really just do whatever we want to. We don't have to worry about what God thinks about it. We don't have to worry about the consequences. I think that what's happened, let me take it a step backwards Our prosperity has affected us in ways. There's a reason Jesus warned about the deceitfulness of riches. We have become accustomed to a certain type of lifestyle, and that lifestyle is very much to please the flesh. So what has happened is there's been this subtle change in Christianity over the last 40 years. We've gone from Christianity being Christ-centered and revolving around a sovereign and holy God, the Almighty, you know, and we had a huge perspective of the Lord 40 years ago. And little by little, that has been withered away by this selfish desire for worldly living until now, by and large, the Christian faith in the United States has become man-centered. Richard Baxter, an old Puritan, kind of capsulized what I'm talking about when he said, as much as God desires the salvation of men, He will not prostitute heaven and set the gates of it wide open to those who only fly to it in extremity, but never sought it in good earnest, nor indeed do now care for it or desire it for any other reason but to excuse them from going to hell. You know, Steve, I think any time you start talking about the need to seek the Lord and to do more than just have a simple faith and depend on grace, I think one of the concerns that comes up in people's minds is, wait a minute, are you talking about works? I thought we were saved by grace, by faith, not by works. Yes, that is very true. We are only saved by grace and by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But James makes the point that if there is true saving faith, there is going to be works accompanying that faith. And if there are no works, then it's a good sign that there is no 
true saving faith. And so, you know, it seems like a contradiction with all that Paul says about works, but actually there is no contradiction, because when Paul is saying that we are not saved by works, he is referring to the Jewish system of trying to earn your salvation through works. So what we're talking about, if I could put it this way, is before and after conversion. If you have not been converted and you are trying to earn your way to heaven, you will never do it. You will never make it there. But if you have truly been converted, then there is going to be a proof of that conversion in the way that you live your life. So there really is no conflict between what James is saying and what Paul said. You lay out three proofs of true conversion as you talked about this subject. Can you lay those out for us? Yeah, I referred to three things. These are three of many, but uh, maybe some of the bigger issues. One is a continual growth in obedience to God. We begin this Christian life as spiritual babes, and of course, at first, you know, God gives us a lot of latitude for mistakes, for sin issues that are still happening hanging on our lives and the struggles we have to work through and so on. You know, the Lord understands, but he expects growth. And for a a person who's truly been saved, there's going to be that growth because Jesus Christ is living within. Another proof of genuine conversion is the development of an eternal perspective. The genuine believer is just simply going to have eternity in the back of his mind. It's going to shape his worldview and the way he sees the rest of his life and that sort of thing. He's going to have eternal values in the equation, if I could put it that way. As opposed to just living for the here and now, which is the American way of life. And that's what many so-called Christians do, is they live with very much a temporal, earthly mindset, and that makes me wonder, you know, have they really been converted? The last characteristic that I mentioned in the book is love, because Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And here again, the temptation is to take a superficial perspective of what love is and, you know, oh, I'm a nice guy and I love people, you know, but that's not the fiery love of Jesus Christ that burns through a real Christian's heart. That kind of love causes you to get out of yourself and meet the needs of other people in one fashion or another. So a true love that compels you to see the needs in others and to help other people is a sign of a healthy Christianity. One of the things you bring up, Steve, as you're looking at dead faith, one of the marks of dead faith, and that is self-will. Yes, because it's very easy to just do the church thing, you know, the evangelical thing, and really keep God at arm's length, really refuse to submit yourself to his authority, to his lordship. And so when that's not happening, we need to examine ourselves and determine why. Why has there been no true spiritual growth? That's a very pointed question that we all should consider. I was going to ask you as we close up today, Steve, as a person does evaluate their heart, as you describe those marks of true conversion and they realized, I don't see those things in my life, what do they do? What's the solution? If there is reason to doubt whether or not 
you have truly been converted, then there is only one thing to do, and that is to get on your face before God and begin to cry out earnestly for the Holy Spirit to make himself real to you and to repent of your sins, to repent of your self-will, repent of your worldliness, anything that you have allowed to get in between you and God, and to refuse to get up, so to speak, until the assurance has come to you that you are a child of God, and then you can go forth with the confidence of knowing that you have crossed that line and that you belong to Jesus Christ. Those who live in open disobedience to the clear commands of Scripture will always reap sin's horrible harvest, including the slaving power of addiction. And the men in our residential program are perfect examples of this. But there is hope. Listen to this talk given during a Thursday meeting, in which Pastor Steve Gallagher and Pastor Jeff Cologne use their personal testimony to bring a strong word of exhortation and a wonderful word of encouragement. I just, I had something on my heart before Jeff even started sharing a little earlier, and that was to do with obedience. You know, Pastor Jeff and the others up here, we can create an atmosphere because of our love for the Lord that you can enter into, but if you ever want it to become your own, and if you ever want it to get beyond just an emotional experience, your level of obedience has got to deepen. Guys, you no longer have the luxury to do the smorgasbord Christianity thing, to pick and choose when you're going to obey. Something has got to change. This is where I'd start pounding if I was up there. So, praise the Lord, I'm down here. Maybe I'll just start doing this. But I really, I, actually, I wanted to come down here because I want to be close to you. Because I want to make it an, a soft appeal to your heart. I was just thinking back on when I was a Christian and struggling and how I would hear a sermon, I would read a book, you know, sometimes good words but I would just kind of blow it off. And then I'd go home and I would forget about it. You know, and I never let things penetrate. And I never changed. And I remember in 85, I don't know why things started changing, but I started obeying. I mean, that's really what it boiled down to. I just started obeying. I remember I was just talking to a board member back there. I was just talking to him about something that happened back in 85. The Lord started dealing with me on some things, and I started finally doing what He was saying. And things started changing. Wow, imagine that. Things actually started changing. My faith started growing, and my sight of God started growing. And I started wanting to do the right thing. But guys, you have got to get out of this shallow, Christianity, you have got to get to where you start really obeying the Lord from the heart. That's how you prepare your heart. You have the attitude, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I am going to do it. 
you have to come to God with that attitude. And if you don't come to God with that attitude, what you are, you're a rebel. But there are no rebels in heaven. We just sang a nice little song. We all want to be there. Amen. We all want to be there. But we've got to obey the Lord. And don't think, I don't know what convoluted doctrine you've come up with over the years that has allowed for this life that you've led. I know, you know, I was in the same thing. But trust me, if you don't know what it means to obey God from the heart, you will not be there. You just won't. You know, I was thinking of um, Matthew 7, 21. You know, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we speak in tongues? And didn't we cast out devils, you know? In other words, this kind of Christian will, they don't mind doing things. You know, they'll, they'll tithe, they'll go to church, and they'll, they'll get involved, and they'll do some things. But you know what the bottom line is? They are always, always in control. And they decide when and how they'll obey. And Jesus said, you won't, it's those who obey my Father's will are who will be in heaven. So you've got to learn what that means for your life, guys. You've got to come to grips with this thing. What is God asking of you? I bet right now he's dealing with different ones of you about some particular issue or another. And maybe you're resisting him, or you have been. Don't be like that. You're just wasting your time. You, you won't get anything. I don't want to make this a big speech tonight. I'm just imploring you to go deeper. Go deeper with the Lord. I'm telling you, things will change in your life like they did for Steve Gallagher 26 years ago. Would I have guessed that a year later I'd be sharing my testimony on the 700 Club? No, no way. Who knows what God will do with your life? Who can imagine? Who would have thought that in three years I'd be on the Oprah Winfrey show sharing my testimony? Why? Because this pervert in California just started doing what he was told to do finally. There is nothing special about Steve Gallagher. Trust me. I'm not some great guy or something. I was a jerk, I was a rebel, I was stubborn, I was all those things. But something happened and I started obeying the Lord and everything turned on a dime, really. And that's why God brought you here. So start obeying Him from the heart. Amen? I had a very strong impression in my heart as I was singing. It's just very real to me, man, that the Lord wants you to know He's here. He's available for you, but you have to obey. You have to do what He says so you're prepared to meet Him. He who hears the Word of God and doesn't do it, it profits in nothing, right? But if you do it, it will profit you a lot. And it's why these people are sitting here in these chairs and, and up here and all these people you see working here uh, they're only here for one reason 
because they met God in this place and they said yes to him and they're still saying yes to him. And that's why he's changed their lives. And you're no different as Pastor Steve said. And God is continually wanting all of us to come under him. Come under him in every way. And I was reading something to the staff this morning talking about redeeming our time. It was written by Rex Andrews. And he says in there that eventually, eventually, God wants all of your time. Eventually, he wants all your time. And there's something in me that says, really? Everything? Everything. Absolutely everything. That's what it means to come under the Lord. But let me tell you, the problem is we don't understand what we get in exchange. We get the fullness of God. We get all the precious promises, all the power there is in the cross and the resurrection life we are given access to and it, it's implemented into our lives in all of its fullness. And you will never regret that happening because that's where your true joy, satisfaction, peace, purpose, hope, everything about life and eternity comes from Him and nothing else. And that's what He's trying to give you. But again, you have to prepare yourself for that. You have to do what he says so you can come up to that place that God wants to bring you. You have to do it. There's no other way up there. But he's made a way. You just gotta come under it. That's all. And obey. And what we do, thank you. And, and Lord, I want to pray. Even if they want to walk out of here and forget it, Lord, I pray you'd hound them. I pray it would, it would come over and over and over in their hearts and in their minds that the Holy Spirit would be relentless. I pray you would do that for these men. God, whatever it's going to take for them, Lord, break them, mold them, melt them, God, so you can fill them and do what you want to do in them, Lord. And we thank you, Lord. It's not impossible. There's none that's too hard for here, Lord, if they would just bend the knee God and we know you can do it and we thank you for it Lord Glenn Meldrum is an itinerant evangelist and a longtime friend of the ministry and to wrap up today's show we asked him to come in and talk about what the Bible has to say about obedience to explore the role that it plays in the Christian's life and to help us understand how to grow in the grace of obedience Glenn, a message of yours was included in our most recent video series, The Overcomers series, which is a set of 24 messages on 12 discs, complete with bonus material, including testimonies and documentaries, about how to live an overcoming life as a Christian in today's world. Your message, The Mark of a Christian, is a serious call to Christians to commit to obedience to the Lord. As we discuss this crucial part of the Christian life, would you get us started by describing for us the theme of obedience that you find outlined in Scripture? Why is obedience so important? Well, because everything in the Bible really is about obedience or disobedience. It begins in uh, the book of Genesis, 
where the Lord creates Adam and Eve and gives them a command, and their ability to stay in paradise was contingent upon obedience. And the command was very simple. If you don't partake of that tree, you can stay here. If you rebel and partake of that tree, you will die. And so the existence of mankind and their relationship with God was based upon obedience. And it had to be obedience that was just simply done because they loved God. As you move on from that point, everything that flows from there, because out of their disobedience came death and all the consequences of sin that came upon them and the human race, you see the whole scheme that is laid out in Scripture from the entire Old Testament is about obedience or disobedience, where men, kings, and and queens lived in obedience or disobedience with God and the consequences that came out of that. Ultimately, Jesus came into the world because we were rebels. And in our rebellion, there was death. And for that to be changed or to be altered or way of escape from it, Jesus had to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve that we might be forgiven. And so Christ's obedience brought about our salvation. But that came because of our disobedience. We had to respond because of our disobedience. And so when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament is all about the subject of obedience. To be a disciple is to obey, is to come in this place of loving obedience. And so when you begin to look at it, all of Scripture is about obedience or the consequences of disobedience. Then you come to the final chapter of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. The final two Beatitudes are blessed, are blessed are you if you obey me. So when you look at that, it opens, the Bible opens with obedience, closes with obedience. Everything in between is about obedience. And it's the biggest subject in the word. I just don't think that people understand it. I don't think that they have processed this enough because of its great dimension and the seriousness of it. Uh, Our neglecting it can cause us great damage and ultimately could cost us our eternity. Let's suppose that someone wants to argue against your emphasis on obedience, saying that obedience is necessary under the law, but as a New Testament Christian, I'm not under law but under grace. Doesn't an emphasis on obedience just lead to legalism? And if I'm covered by grace, why is obedience even necessary? How would you respond to that? Well, I would say the first thing they need to do is go back and read their Bible again, because they are uh, very wrong with such a concept. Just think for a moment about the aspect of a God that is infinite in every dimension of his being. For him to have any interaction with any creature, whether it's an angel or man, he must stoop down in divine condescension to be able to do that. That is grace. Grace is from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It was grace that caused him to create and to reach out to mankind, even in paradise when they walked with God. It was grace that he walked with them in the cool of the day. It was grace that when they rebelled against him that he did not instantly kill them, but went and had a sacrifice, the very first sacrifice, to clothe them with the animal skins. I mean, from there, you just keep seeing grace in in all these expressions that are just phenomenal. It was grace that Noah was not destroyed in the flood. It was grace that ended up coming to Abraham before the law ever existed 
that he would bring this man to a place of promises that would be tremendous, that ultimately Messiah would come through, but that he was called the friend of God. Why? Because he was a man that lived by faith, but ultimately he was walking in the grace of God. Grace was, was there before the law ever came into existence. But not just that, the law came into existence by the grace of God. We try to think that somehow this law, this Mosaic law was given to us because God was mean or he was just trying to, to make us do something that we didn't want to do. But we failed then to understand that the purpose of the law was much bigger. And Paul really gets in this in some of his arguments, such as in the book of Galatians, where he refers to it as being a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. The law was necessary to reveal the reality of our sinful condition and need of a savior. And so he gave the law in this plan of grace that began before the foundations of the earth. So grace was operating before God even created heaven and earth. And so here's this grace working to bring about the law so that ultimately it could reveal our sinfulness, that we could see our need of a Savior when the Savior came into the world. And so to think that the Old Testament is just law and the New Testament is grace is a real perversion of the whole history of the Word of God and the history of salvation. Now, of course, in the New Testament, grace and peace comes through Jesus Christ. He made the way for that. But it was all grace that brought Jesus to that point that he died on the cross and grace that he would rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father and send the Holy Spirit and come and dwell among us and to sanctify us and all this work of salvation. And so we have to see the the mark of God in all of this that grace has been working in ways we can't even fathom. And to end up saying that obedience is legalism is then to end up saying that every angel in heaven is legalistic and every redeemed in heaven is legalistic. And it's just not true. Obedience is actually an expression of love. And when we don't love, then we live as rebels. When we love and the deeper our love is, the more obedience becomes the simple outcropping of, our, of this life of devotion to him. John told us in his epistle that his commandments are not burdensome to him. Why? If we love him. So the greater our love is for God, the easier it is for us to obey him. Now, I'm not going to say there aren't hard times and difficulties, but when we love him, those commands become a joy to us. And that is something that comes out so powerfully in John chapter uh, 14 and 15, where six times he brings out in those two chapters that if you love me, you'll obey me. One of those times he brings out in the negative that if you don't love me, you won't obey me. So to not obey God is not loving God. And so people can go and say that's just legalistic. But I would say what it really is, is they're not wanting to obey him is love of sin and compromise and worldliness. It's the opposite of what Christianity really is all about. To be a disciple, to be a New Testament saint is to obey the master is to come under his rule, to be tutored by him, to be mentored by him, to be taught how to be like Jesus. And everything in this Christian faith is about loving God and becoming more like Jesus. That's what the whole sanctifying work of the Spirit is, about becoming more like Jesus. And how are we going to be like Jesus if we live in disobedience? Because Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. Everything about him was obedience. Everything that he did, every word he spoke, every act he did was an obedience. Right down to being nailed to the cross was obedience. And then he finished it all. He finished the work and cried from the cross, it is finished. Obedience finished. 
And so if we're going to be like Jesus, I think one of the things that should be defining our life is loving obedience. From your experience, Glenn, where are Christians today most tempted to neglect obedience to God? Well, I guess the issue really is that we don't neglect obedience. We rebel against God. And so this is more of a purposeful act. We don't accidentally disobey. It is a conscious choice. Now, if we are absolutely ignorant about something, then there can be a different dynamic of that. But when we practice sin, we know what sin is. We know what we're doing. And we may harden our heart, and we may try to justify our actions, but deep down inside, God has given mankind a conscience. And that is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring conviction to us, to show us the reality of our heart, and then the Word of God is there to bring it uh, in a very real and solid way that we can understand what right and wrong is. And when we do what is wrong, we know that we have broke the laws of God. So I would end up saying that in our culture, Christians are disobeying the word of God and the commands of God because they choose to, not because they're forced to or because it's just an accident. I think by looking at the reality of our willful rebellion against God, then we can begin to go and deal with the reality of our own heart. Until we see that our heart is in this place of rebellion against them, willful rebellion, we won't go and begin to cry out to God, change me, transform me. We won't go to him and begin to plead for this work of grace inside of us that would help us to overcome. Because the very purpose of grace in our life as Christians is to help us overcome sin, not to keep us in sin or to justify our sin. And so when grace is working in our lives, we are going to obey. That is what grace is going to be there for, to help us obey the commands of God, to walk in that place of loving obedience. And the examples of people living in compromise is so diverse and so full. I mean, it's from sexual sins to drug addiction to alcohol uh, addiction to all kinds of things out there. I don't think there's one area. We are a people that are so rebellious, we look for ways to rebel. And it just comes so naturally to us. The life of obedience to Christ is really a, a life of learning to die to our own sinful nature. And that is a real challenge for us. Glenn, you mentioned the area of sexual sin, which, of course, is our focus at Pure Life. If you were a counselor at Pure Life, what more would you say on the subject of obedience to the man who struggles with sexual sin? Well, the first thing I would say is the Word of God has to be our guideline. Until we are willing to make the Word of God our guideline, the plumb line by which we uh, understand right or wrong— Everything then is subject to moral relativism. So your right is your right, my right is my right, and what happens with that is sheer chaos because there can be no order, there can be no uh, civility in a culture that embraces moral relativism. And because our country is getting deeper and deeper into moral relativism, you see more and more the negative and destructive effects of it. So we have to have the Word of God to become the definer of our life. And until we do that, we're going to live whatever the lusts of the flesh want. So through the Word of God, we are told that sex is to be only between a husband and wife in marriage. That's it. Not between two people of the same sex and not outside of marriage. So he has given that guideline because the whole idea of this is bigger and greater than we understand because God wants to take the the story of who he is and the story of salvation and take it from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. 
He wants to pass the story on. And the story can only be effectively passed on when people are living this out. And so sexual purity is because God wants a godly offspring so that the story of salvation can continue to flow through a family and through a people and into a community and even into a nation. And so the first thing is the word of God. It must be the plumb line. The second thing is what I brought out there about the the purpose of marriage, that the idea is that God wants this story of salvation flowing into a family and through a family then into a dying world. But there's another thing there that uh, is love for God. If we are caught in habitual sin, we have to have a better love than our love of sin. Until we have a better love for our love of sin, we will continue in the practice of sin. And what sin gives us may be tantalizing for a little bit, but what's going to happen is in the end, it will bite us. The serpent's bite is in every sin. It's always there. There may be the fleeting pleasures of sin for a moment, but eventually the sorrow of sin is going to come. And when that comes, then we begin to suffer and at times even get angry at God. How many people have been angry at God because their marriage is falling apart, but they were both husband and wife were nightmares to each other. And so we can blame God for the sin that we practice, but there's nobody to blame but ourselves. When we love God, we want to begin to obey his commands because we find joy in it. But not just joy in obeying his commands, but the benefits that come out of that are tremendous because God is able to take a husband and wife and make an absolutely phenomenal marriage. When we do it God's way, it comes out wonderful. When we do it our way, it comes out disastrous. And so when he calls us to obedience, it's not just that it is in keeping with his character. And we do this because that's the laws that he has given us. But he has given those laws because it's also for our well-being, because he loves us. It's like a little child that is wanting to do something that is going to be very harmful to that child. And the parent is saying, no, don't do that. And the child can be persistent and continue doing that thing and suffer for it. But if the child would listen, that child would be spared much agony by obeying the parent. Glenn, in your message, The Mark of a Christian, you define obedience as the primary characteristic of a born-again believer. Why does obedience rank so high for you? There's no way that we can be pleasing to God without obedience. Faith is an act of obedience. So if we are going to believe God, then we have to be willing to obey him. The expression of faith is going to be that obedience. And so when you look at obedience, it is so much a, a, a part of what it means to be a Christian. And if we are willing to just look at the Bible, just look at it and lay aside all of our opinions and ideas and everything else and just let it speak for itself instead of trying to read into those verses our preconceived ideas, then we will begin to see that obedience and disobedience flows through the scripture and that obedience brings God's blessing and disobedience is judgment. Now, the mark of a Christian, I want to take a little bit deeper. Obedience is loving Jesus. And so we cannot love others until we love Jesus. And the more we love Jesus, the better we will love others. But if we're going to love Jesus, then obedience is an integral part of that. We cannot be in love with Jesus and be in rebellion against him. So this whole thing of obedience to Christ is an expression of the love of God to him. And the more I learn to obey him, the more I will begin to rightly love others. Whenever I fail in loving others, it's because I'm failing to obey Christ. 
And if we looked at it like that, we might be in a little bit more repentance than what we normally are, might see marriages be a little bit uh, more pleasing to God and have more joy in it than what people would understand because that place of loving God is going to help us love a spouse or children or somebody that is being very nasty to us in the workplace or whatever expression it may be. But when we learn this place of loving obedience, then we're going to become more like Christ. And that's really what this Christian faith is all about, to becoming more like Christ. And so the mark of a Christian is that we live in loving obedience, that we love him and prove that through obeying his word. And when we obey his word, then we will see it lived out in expressions towards other people. We will love them. And so there's something more than just raw doctrine. We need to be doctrinally correct. And there's something more, and that's greater than just spiritual gifts. And you can see this when you look at Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, which are two chapters on the gifts, and right smack dab in the middle is 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. And so all of that is to be defined by love, but love can only operate through obedience. And so when we love God, we will obey. When we love others, we'll want to reach out to them in evangelism or minister to their needs as believers or whatever it might be. Our lives will be lives that are being given away for the sake of others and for the glory of God. Well, I really hope this show has helped you, both in your understanding of why so many in the church are addicted and in your own personal journey toward loving obedience. And finally, if you haven't already seen Kathy Gallagher's video testimony, please check it out on our YouTube channel. She talks about how in the early years of her marriage to Steve Gallagher, divorce seemed like a much less painful option, but she decided to obey God and to stick by her husband's side as he battled his way out of sexual addiction. And what tremendous fruit has come forth from her choices. I hope that as you watch her story, you will also be encouraged to live a life of courageous obedience to God. That's all for today's show. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.